But really, the goal is to say, in spite of all these challenges, in spite of all these tragedies, like, what is hopeful? Where do you still find joy? And like, what kind of effort does it take to try and locate some joy? Welcome to the Book Society podcast, where we talk to interesting people about interesting books. It's really that simple. Okay, here we go. Let me introduce our guest. Joe Mino currently lives in Chicago. He is the winner of the Nelson Algren Literary Award. He's won a Pushcart Prize. He has won a Great Lakes Book Award, and he was a finalist for the Story Prize. He has written seven novels, Marvel and Wonder, Office Girl, The Great Perhaps, The Boy Detective Fails, Hairstyles of the Damned, probably my favorite title, How the Hula Girl Sings, and Tender as Hellfire. He's also written a book called The Book of Extraordinary Tragedies, which we're going to talk about today. If novels aren't your thing, you can read Joe Menno or hear Joe Menno in McSweeney's The New York Times, Chicago Magazine, or NPR. He is the creator of Star Witness, a seven-part serial on electric literature. He's written plays. Uh, a lot of his novels have been turned into films. His work has been performed at the Kennedy Center. And he is a professor at Columbia University of Chicago, which is uh, my wife's alma mater. So I, I just I just kind of want to like give you my thoughts on the book. I, I really loved it. It was beautiful. It was like a, I could say the things that the New York Times says about you, which is that your prose is amazing. And even when your characters are just sort of like grunting and looking at each other, it's still beautiful and important. Uh, and um, yeah, I, st I stole that one from Janet Maslin, I think. Um, but I'll take credit for it. Uh, and I really, I felt like the book of extraordinary tragedies was a bit like a diff a bit like a Dickens novel, but without the happy ending. I don't know. Is Dickens <laughs> famous for his happy endings? Not usually. You know? Not usually, but it, you know, the we, we did read um which one was it? Our mutual friend. And that one has uh -huh. like a oh, it turns out that we were actually married all along. You right. know, yeah, yeah. It's got one of those. Right. Um but yeah, I I and I loved it. And I I mean I'm a I love a good tragedy, but it's also not really a tragedy. No, no, and I, I appreciate that. I, I would argue that like in, I love the thank you for the amazingly kind words and the Dickens comparison. And um, I actually think the book, you know, like the book is meant, the title is meant to be ironic and that it is hopefully uplifting. And you follow these characters and their struggles, which are, you know, based in reality, based in the experiences, some of the challenges I have faced or my family members have faced. And it's really the story of this young man, Alex, who's 20 trying to do everything he can to keep his family together, to um, get them to want to save themselves, which is a kind of an impossible endeavor at some points in the book. But really the goal is to say, in spite of all these challenges, in spite of all these tragedies, like what, what is hopeful? Where do you still find joy? And like, what kind of effort does it take, especially in, you know, a cultural moment like ours, in spite of all these different challenges that, you know, we're asked to confront, like, what does it take to try and locate some joy? And, and that's really Alex's hmm. struggle in the book. So even though the title and, and a lot of the challenges that the characters face are, are you know, tragic, yeah, I think it's really exploration of the possibility of finding joy in kind of unexpected places. That's so interesting. And it's, um, it's such a subtle book in that way. And I think the, the thing about it that struck me is, I end up reading a good amount of fiction and nonfiction for this show and then just in life. And a lot of the books that are out now are just in these neat packages that you could 
describe them and get a pretty good idea of what they are from an elevator pitch. I really feel like your book is kind of like some of the best nonfiction I've read where it's like the book is the shortest expression of the idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got it. I love yeah. that. Well, and this is, this is not a um, 90 minute movie. Mm-hmm. Or like a, a web series, or it's it's a novel, and you know I, I've been really fortunate to w- work in a lot of different forms over the years, from short stories to journalism. I had the chance to adapt one of my books as a musical, and th- you know I kind of as I, I'm developing material, I ask myself like, what about this story has to be told as a novel? Like, why not just do it as a twenty page short story or do it as a play? Like, what can you do? in this form in the novel in 200 or 300 pages, what can you do with language and and text on a page that you can't do in all these other media? Hmm. Um, And so like exploring characters over time and getting a sense of them and some of the challenges they face and their personalities and the way their thoughts work. And that's something that the novel can do that all these other kind of art forms really can't capture as well. Um, so I think it's really difficult. You know, in the end, the book is about this young man, Alex, who lives on the south side of Chicago. Um, it's really about his relationship with his older sister, Isabel. They're the mm-hmm. center of the book. They grew up in this Eastern European family, of which I'm a member. Half of my family is Croatian and, and Polish. And that culture is really interesting and specific. And, you know, speaking to tragedy, they really... Um, traffic and really enjoy some of the more tragic elements of life. I remember as kids, you know, my my siblings and I would go to these like family parties with aunts and uncles and great aunts and all these, you know, Yugoslavians would be sitting around telling these like horribly tragic stories one after the other, almost like a, like a game. And like who could tell the saddest story? And there would be like a pause in between. And they would all kind of nod, like someone would say, and that's when, you know, her money was all stolen and she was left for dead. And, you know, and then they'd be like, and <laughs> someone else would tell the story and say, like, oh, and that's when the Soviets showed up and killed all the animals and the family almost starved. And then, like, someone else would nod. And so there, there's this, uh, in that culture, in, in, in Polish and kind of Croatian, Yugoslavian culture, like, you learn not to expect happiness. You know, that happiness is this thing that that is fleeting and you shouldn't expect it every day or every year. And that you're really not raised to trust happiness as this concept that you deserve. And that's really interesting because it also connects to the music. You know, as a musician, I'm sure like our, you know, growing up in America and in the second half of the 20th century, you know, classical music was always this thing that my grandfather, this Yugoslavian guy, was listening to in the back room, and it seemed so strange and foreign and off-putting. I remember as like a three-year-old or four-year-old being forced to go say hello to him, and he would be like surrounded by these records, and the music would be playing, and the the music is so emotionally rich and complicated that to like a three or four-year-old, it's just like too much, like. If you grew up listening to American pop music, you know this is a three-minute happy song, or this is like a three-minute sad song, and that's it. Like, there's no happy song that becomes sad and sad song that becomes happy. But when you listen to Beethoven or Puccini or Mozart, like there's these huge fluctuations and dynamics and tone, and you really don't know how to track it. That's a fantastic observation. I I mean, one of the things that sucked me into your book as a musician was your descriptions of music are 
just fantastic. Oh, and I was going to ask you if you're a professional musician and not, I'm, I'm completely unprofessional. You know, I started playing music as a kid, I played guitar and I played in like punk and metal bands throughout high school. And then in my twenties, and then I was also a music journalist um, for a long time. So music and writing for me always have this interesting relationship uh, to each other. Our house, you know, it's filled with like books and, and record albums. And for me, it's like I think of music the same way I think of like a, a book as kind of imaginary space hmm. that you have the opportunity to enter to whether escape from the reality of life or to ponder kind of some of the things you're facing. But it's this like imaginary space that opens up and it gives you the opportunity to kind of step out of the present and connect to the past, present, future. And I think the older I get, the more I need those imaginary spaces just to be alone and to learn how to be with my thoughts. And the thing about music, like, you know, kind of classic European music, it is so rich and complicated that um, it forces you to like, appreciate life in that way like life isn't a three-minute pop song or at least my life isn't you know but it's also not like a three-minute sad ballad you know it's much more complicated and it ebbs and flows and there's these tonal shifts and you know the start of your day might be full of contention and argument and it might become really beautiful in a surprising way and, hmm. and so with this book you know i was jotting down these different sections these different events that happened to the character. And at some point I was like, well, this kid, he grew up playing Euro European music, classical music, him and his sister, he played piano and she played the cello. And he's still so in love with music, even though he started to lose his hearing, which is something that I share with the character. I realized like, well, why not tell this book as a composition? Like, I'm just going to make this book into a musical composition. So the book is actually set up in four parts, like a traditional symphony. And it's meant to kind of mirror the way those classical European pieces work, where there's like, here's this one part, and it's kind of slow build up. Here's this other part, Scherzo, which is like fast and energetic. And um, it really gave me the opportunity to like create these uh, structures or shapes to put these different things that were happening to the characters inside of. And it gave it like an overall kind of cohesion that really didn't exist. That's amazing. I'm I'm just going to push back a little bit on something yeah, you yeah. said about uh, pop right. music. So I agree with you that pop songs today, we're sort of back in the world of the single. And that is a really beautiful observation that a three minute pop song kind of has one emotion that it expresses. I, I really never thought of that. And that, that's, that's totally true. I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a counter example, but I don't know if I can. Um, but I think albums, especially in the the golden age of pop, was really more like a classical symphony. I mean, I think of yeah. Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, yeah. When you think of you the know? White Album, right, mm -hmm. and all the incredible tone variations, not just song by song between the different voices of, from Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Ringo has, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that very, I mean, and that's how that album feels. It feels like here are these four guys trying to capture everything what it was, you know, how did it feel to be alive in the late 60s mm -hmm. and using all these different methods, whether recording methods or different instruments or even like just different kinds of popular music. And that, yeah, and I think 
unfortunately we're not in that moment anymore, you know? And like, I mean, I know there's actually some amazing musicians in 2023 who are creating this really rich, complicated music who still believe in the album. But in terms of like our culture and popular music, it's definitely like the TikTok length, um, short kind of single. And that has its own purpose too. And people are subverting it and doing really interesting things with it as well. I think for this book, um, similar to some of the albums you were describing, uh, what I was really interested in capturing was like a year in this kid's life and, and the highs and lows and, and the emotional complexity. And there was something about that classical symphony form that felt like it could contain those different shifts in a really interesting way. And the other part of Alex's story is, like I mentioned, he he started losing his hearing at the age of 10. Mm-hmm. He's 20 at the beginning of the book. And so I've struggled with hearing loss for about the last 18 years or so. I wear hearing aids, and I have never seen a film or read a book that kind of accurately described the sensation or the feeling of living with that. And so I wanted to bring that to the experience of Alex as well, because even though he can't hear everything and he's aware of his hearing loss, especially when it has to do with like communicating with other characters or hearing certain parts of music. He still thinks about music all the time. Like he's riding his bike across town, composing these kind of ridiculous symphonies for himself. Um, And he's thinking about music as it relates to his life. And I still, even though, you know, I've lived with this loss for a while, I still listen to music. I still think about music. I'm very aware of, what I can't hear, especially, you know, thinking about the White Album, I know there are songs I don't hear quite the same way. There's pieces that I'm missing from songs that I've heard over and over. But it also has forced me to think about silence in like a radically different way. It's one of my favorite parts of your book. Oh, I really appreciate That's it. That's one of my favorite things is describing the shapes of silences. And the, the reason that I, I asked originally if you were a composer is the way that Alex thinks about music is, and, and I mean, I know you're writing this character, so this is why I thought to ask you this question, but the way that Alex thinks about music and thinks about sound is the way that professional musicians think about music. And it, it requires training and observation and study to even conceive of music in the way that you write about it, um, about silences having shapes and, you know, just the way that instruments interact with each other. And it just, it was really beautiful. And it there were moments where I was reading you know, about Alex thinking about music or writing one of the great compositions, uh, as he calls them in his head. And I was thinking, I think this guy's a better composer than I am. Um, <laughs> Come on, Lucas. No <laughs> way, man. No, well, well, like part of it is there, there's something really lovely and relatable to me about like a person, a character who's in love with something that doesn't quite exist anymore. It's like, hmm. but they can't quite get to that place or interact or, And so Alex is so in love with music and he knows like because of his hearing loss, he can't, he'll never be like a professional musician or composer, but it's still such a huge part of his life. And that's really, you know, directly out of my, my own experience, but it forced me and, you know, I started losing my hearing in my early thirties, definitely the result of playing music and attending shows as a fan and as a, hmm. as a music journalist in the nineties before anyone that was ever wearing earplugs at shows. Um, and also my mother is, is deaf. And so there's genetic components as well. 
But as I was like starting to accept it and my wife's like, you need to get your hearing tested and started to talk about it, tell people, I was like forced to start thinking about instead of just focusing on here are all these things I can't hear anymore. Or when I put on a David Bowie record, like I'm acutely aware, can't hear certain lyrics or certain, hmm. you know, like high end um, instruments. But instead of just focusing on what I don't hear anymore, I've tried to learn to focus on like, what am I hearing differently? And how like I have tinnitus, like how does that change the pitch or tone of the things that I'm hearing? Or like really searching for interesting kinds of silence because the way I hear things is different now than the way other people hear things. And it has these like little interesting missing parts to it. And so like standing out in a garden listening is this really fascinating experience. It's forced me to kind of be much more present in the moment and kind of pick out these details that I otherwise would just have completely missed. Yeah, that's a, it's a wonderful thing to do. And just for any of the listeners who want to experience exactly what Joe's talking about, um, just go literally anywhere or sit where you are right now and just try to really just try to listen to the sounds that are around you because there are many of them. On the subject of hearing loss, I want to give you, I want to point you to one example everyone knows, one example that you probably know, but most people don't, and then one example that you might not know. Um, so Beethoven, obviously, everyone knows Beethoven was deaf, or he worked deaf throughout his life. Incredible. Um, another one is Burdick Smetna. Um, do you know his music? I don't know. Who's, oh. I'm a, dying to, to find out. So... Is he a contemporary uh, composer? No, he's uh, he is someone that Alex would have probably liked, and he's oh. Eastern European, which is why I thought he um, he's Czech. So I thought you might dig him, but he is he's slightly obscure. Um, I and I'm so glad I could return the favor because you actually that's turned amazing. me on to some music that I didn't really. Oh, know. that's the so, greatest gift. That's the greatest um, gift. Because. So I will send you a link to uh, okay. my favorite Smetna quartet, um, and he wrote it as he was going deaf, oh, okay. and he did some of his best work afterwards. Um, and then the third one is Dame Evelyn Glennie who is, uh, do you know her? No. Uh, she's a, uh, like a percussionist and marimba player who is, uh, has been knighted and lives in London. And I've done some work with her and she's completely deaf and she plays in orchestras and she's a soloist. Yeah. She's unbelievable. Lucas, did she happen to lose her hearing or was she born with hearing loss or? I think she was, I actually don't know. I think she lost her hearing, but very young. Okay. She has all these ways of just understanding and internalizing and feeling music. And she's, you know, she's a world-class performer. Yeah. Um, That's incredible. Well, thank you so much yeah. for the the recommendation. That means so much. The funny thing about this book, you know, I've, the book came out a couple months ago and I was on tour doing these di- different book readings. And every reading, I did nine different cities. At the end of every reading, someone would come up to me and say, Oh my gosh, I lost my hearing in a car accident. You know, hmm. I, in one one ear, I, I've been deaf for 20 years. I had a virus when I was a kid. And it's just way more um, prevalent than I think people acknowledge or necessarily willing to talk about. Yeah, I've started to notice some hearing loss in my right ear. And I went to the doctor and I, you know, he tested me and did whatever they do. And he said, nope, you're, you're perfect. And I said, I'm telling you that I'm hearing like 500 to a thousand, about four DB, five DB lower than it should be in my right ear. It's like, I can test this on my, on my rig. Yeah. yeah like yeah. I, I can, I'm telling you that this is how it is, but, uh, you know, apparently it's not enough to warrant any kind of action at this point, but, but it's noticeable. And, you know, I, I just, I just know that I have to compensate for it. One of the things I do is sometimes I'll switch my left channel and right channel just to, 
make sure I'm still hearing everything the same. But I also know some mixers who are older in their 60s and that as you get older, you start to lose high end. That's just even with perfect hearing. Yeah, any yeah, anybody, yeah. any human being as they age, just like you know your eyesight or pain in your in your joints, like everybody slowly loses their hearing. So know? they'll they'll have an assistant check mixes and be like, hey, is there anything over like two K that I'm missing here that doesn't sound yeah. right? It's really really interesting. I met these two scientists who study hearing loss at the University of Iowa. And I asked them, like, why is it this one frequency? Because for me and a lot of people who have prolonged or moderate hearing loss, there's a certain range in the middle towards the high end where the human voice just happens to resonate, right? Like it's hmm. right where human speech happens to kind of occupy the frequency. And I was like, why is it like of all these different frequencies, like why is it that one range? And they said that it's because it's, you know, you're, you're, Hearing is based on this this organ that takes in sound and it turns it into electricity, turns it into electricity that sends that signal to your brain. And it's shaped in like a seashell. And right in the middle of the seashell, there are these receptors that take in that range of frequency. And that section gets used over and over and over. And it's just similar to like your eyesight or your, your joints where it's just really wear and tear overuse so over time everybody starts losing that that frequency you know it usually takes like 10 years before people are willing to kind of do something about it or get a hearing test or get hearing aids um because it's some it's it's really hard you know like when you pick up your phone and you can no longer read it you try to sign a check at a restaurant you're like oh my gosh i need some glasses but it's i think much more difficult to self-diagnose the loss um, unless people around you are kind of pointing it out. Well, so for uh, younger listeners, your forties are a fucking nightmare. So you have that to look forward to. Get ready. <laughs> yeah. no, like, do yourself a favor, age 40, like go, you know, if you have resources for, for medical care, insurance, mm -hmm. like just schedule, especially like, listen, if you love music, if you've played music, like just do it, just go get the hearing test. Just so you know, at least you have a baseline of comparison. You can say, okay, this is where I'm at. You know, you could see it as like, oh, here are these things I can't do. Or I can't quite hear these things. Or you could say like, how has this experience changed me and given me access to things that otherwise wouldn't have thought about or cared about? And really, that's the story of the characters in the book. Hmm. You know, in the midst of Alex learning his sister has this like precancerous growth and has to get surgery or he finds out his his niece is starting to lose her hearing. He's also finding these like moments of kind of strange, unexpected beauty, something his niece says, or his cousin steals a bunch of balloons to give to him. <laughs> and, you know, there's like these, these moments. So I, I, that's the thing, the, the lesson I unexpectedly took from my uh, Eastern European family members was it's still there. Like there are these moments of great joy and beauty. You have to do the work. You can't expect it just to show up on your doorstep in that it takes effort. It takes action, especially now, you know, the, in the last three years, of the pandemic and some political upheaval, and it takes a lot of effort to try and find those, those moments. Um, but I think that's the challenge. And, and I think that's something that I had to learn myself. Yeah, you're echoing something that uh, 
uh, one of my dear friends is Bulgarian and, um, we were having a conversation at dinner the other day and she said something about how she hates Disney movies. I'm paraphrasing, but basically what she said was, I hate Disney movies because life is pain. You know? yeah, <laughs> and it's, that doesn't always turn out like that. And I, I was just struck by the, you know, it's the, it's the generational trauma too. I mean, like, you know, of course you would think that way if your parents, you know, if your grandparents had a business and then had to like close it down because communism came and you had to move out of your house and into some brick apartment in the middle of the city. Right. I mean, yeah, that's Europe, Eastern Europe in the 20th century was not a great place to live. Yeah. Well, and it's, if you look at somewhere like Poland, so my great grandfather came over from Poland and actually on his papers, it said the town he lived in, which was in um, Eastern Poland, it said it was Russia. So at the time hmm. that he left, it was, occupied by Russia, you know, for 400 years, it went back and forth from Russian to independent Polish rule. And similar in, in Yugoslavia, Croatia, where my family is from, you know, for 400 years, that part of the world, first it was like the Romans, and then the Ottoman Empire came in, and then the Austrian Hungarians came in, and then it was the Germans during World War II. And then after that was Soviet rule. And so like, that feeling of one wave of kind of um, displacement or detachment from having a sense of control over your life, one after the other, and then, you know, engulfed in civil war in the 1990s in Yugoslavia, that, that feeling of um, powerlessness is also met by these, you talked about some of these great poets or composers, people who worked out of or took these pieces of these historical tragedies and found a way to build something incredible and moving and, and beautiful out of it. Um, and I think that's really the job of like, to be a person alive in 2023, kind of don't have a choice. Like you've got to take all of these different pieces and say like, well, what here? feels useful like what can i take like what can i build out of these different uh disappointments i do think i think about this a lot lucas and i'm not gonna um disparage disney movies because you know over the years i've watched a lot with my kids and i remember growing up watching the world of disney in the 70s or watched some of those movies in the 80s and i think they're great for children you know i think they're great for families there is this strange thing that's happened to our culture at this moment where that aesthetic and what your friend was kind of remarking on is unfortunately the expectations that we have, not just as children, but kind of as adults as well, that like most popular films and television shows in 2023 are Disney films. And that feeling of, well, eventually it's all going to work out. Is, is not necessarily something that resonates with everyone's experience or life. I don't necessarily think that life is pain. You know, like, I don't know if I'm ready to make that statement, but I'll say like life is painful and that like, you should expect that and know it's coming at some point. And how do you prepare for that? And like, how do you live with that? And I don't think those Disney films as beautiful and kind of, um, you know, imaginative as they are. I think, they're pretty light on that aspect of it. And, and they don't necessarily, in the way some novels or stories or beautiful compositions kind of prepare us for these moments where like things are going to get hard. And, and what do you do when things get really, really hard? And what happens if things don't work out the way you were hoping them 
to, to work out. So it, it, I think it's really, really interesting. I think the Disney and Disney Plus and a lot of the streaming stuff has given us the opportunity to retreat from some of the uncomfortable things in the world. And I think that's okay for a time. But I think, you know, it'd be great to see some films, some television shows that feel like they more closely mirror some of the challenges that people deal with on a daily basis. Hmm. Yeah, I think part of the reason that that doesn't exist and part of the reason I think it can exist in a novel but doesn't exist in television is that nobody wants to see the tragedy that they live with depicted on television. It's it's different to read about it and to really get an author's take on it, you know, because your your take on the messiness of life is different from my own. And that's why reading your book is interesting. Um, but to just watch someone uh, go through life and have th some things work out and some things not, it's like, well, that's what I do every day. It's different. It's different. <laughs> I totally agree, Luke. It's like, if you know, it's like eight o'clock at night and like around here, my, our kids start getting ready. Kids are doing homework or, you know, things are winding down. My wife and I, have an hour to kind of hang out and you put a TV show on like, do you want to watch like a family struggling with illness? <laughs> do, do you want to watch a married couple put their kids to bed after yeah. you've just done and, that? Yeah. But, but part, but uh, part of it, and I get it. I and I understand why, you know, a lot of people, a huge market or a huge audience wouldn't be interested in that. But at the same time, there are some like remarkable shows. There's this great show on FX called Better Things by Pam Adlin that she writes and um, stars in and she's a creator. And it's so lovely because it's precisely that. It's like half the show is her like dealing with her kids and her mom who's got dementia and she's like cooking. And it's, it's one of the few shows that feels like, oh, there's joy and beauty and sometimes it's sad and sometimes it's happy and it feels like it it actually captures the complexity of life. There's not too many, you know, other shows that feel lived in with those kind of details. And I, in some ways I feel like I get it. Like, you know, there's been so many challenges in the last couple of years why you would gravitate towards something that's a little more uplifting or something that's wholly, wholly like imaginative, like games of thrones. Like I get like why, that's really attractive. But I also feel like story, same with music, but story in particular is this like survival tool that human beings have developed to prepare us to learn how to be uncomfortable. And so like those stories are particularly useful when it's like, oh, you know, my parent who is dealing with dementia and seeing this character, how they manage that and you're like okay because i know this is coming in a couple years and so like those those stories of survival stories that force us to deal with things that maybe in our life we're not quite ready to deal with or we've been avoiding dealing with like those stories are so useful they're like guide kind of books or milestones for us i think it's time to take a break and we're going to come back next week with joe mino and talk about the baron in the trees which is the book that you select to talk about on this podcast by italo calvino so we'll be back next week with joe mino and we're going to talk about the baron in the trees the book society podcast is brought to you by me lucas Cantor santiago and produced by chris peters we do new episodes on Fridays. We have a lot of episodes. You can listen to some back catalog. If you like the show, please give it a review. You can review it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It takes a few seconds. Helps out the show. Helps other people find it. 
and we really appreciate it. All right, see you next week. I guess I should have predicted that talking to Joe Mino about his book entitled The Book of Extraordinary Tragedies would be a little bit depressing. No, um, <laughs> it's not perfect. <laughs>